guys. That was great. I thought that might be useful to uh, hear this morning's passage in stereo, to hear it in kind of a uh, polyphonic way, if you like, because that's the nature of this vision in Revelation 4 that we're looking at this morning. It is different voices coming from different places. In fact, it's different groups of people at times that are speaking. And it's the kind of passage that you really need imagination to get inside. I was, I was thinking about trying to construct some of the visual elements. I didn't do quite as well on that front. We got the, we got the audio part going, but uh, it was a bit difficult to find a rainbow, to be honest, and the, the jasper and the ruby were a bit expensive, and we don't have 24 elders. So that was the end of that. So you're going to have to imagine. You're going to have to imagine what this is like, and that's what you require in Revelation 4. You need imagination, not, not a fanciful imagination, but you need a biblical imagination, you need a disciplined imagination to get inside this scene. Uh, you've got to imagine what this would have been like to stand there. This is not the kind of passage you just need to intellectually grasp. You've got to see it, you've got to feel it, you've got to hear it. This is majestic. This passage in Revelation 4, I mean, it's got to be one of the most majestic, beautiful worshipful passages, doesn't it, in the whole Bible? Even people that don't like Revelation, they like to parachute into this chapter and have a look around because it's so spectacular. Think of all the songs that come out of Revelation 4, those words that you heard, you know, you can just, you can just hear the refrains of, of songs right from Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus of Handel's Messiah drawn from the words of Revelation 4. Uh, some great old hymns like Holy, 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 uh, right through to contemporary worship songs, Chris Tomlin's We Fall Down. All kinds of songwriters have been inspired by Revelation 4, and artists have as well. Uh, huge amounts of uh, artwork have been produced trying to depict this passage. What would it have been like? What would these living creatures have looked like? I'll give you one example this morning on the screen. This is uh, it's a little bit washed out by the light, but this is a contemporary artist. Pat Movenko-Smith, and this is her interpretation of Revelation 4. You can see the living creatures around the front there and this throne with the, with the spectacular light emanating, the 24 elders dressed in white encircling the throne. And then higher up, the angels, they come in in Revelation 5, the, the, the thousands upon thousands of angels, and this emerald rainbow encircling the top of the throne. So those of you that are more visual learners, we'll, we'll keep that up on the screen from time to time this morning, and you can come back to it and reflect on it, and meditate on it, because you need to connect with this passage somehow. I don't just want this to be a dry intellectual exercise. This has to be experienced, so that we experience the one who sits on the throne. So some Christians believe that Revelation 4 is a picture of the future. In fact, Revelation 4, the beginning of Revelation 4, is really the point of divergence for interpretations of Revelation, some people believe that everything from the beginning of Revelation 4 onwards pertains primarily to the future. And so uh, the rest of it, they would say, is going to come at, at some later day. I'm not personally in that camp. I think Revelation 4, uh, and indeed much of the rest of Revelation, is just as much about the present as it is about the future. In fact, I think in Revelation 4, you, you have past and present and future all there. I think all time dimensions are, are represented because this is a vision of heaven, uh, not primarily of what's happening on earth. And I think the vision and, and John's depiction of this vision is not so much trying to answer the question, when? When's it all going to happen? He's answering the question, who? Who is worthy? 
That's the point. It's, it's don't get fixated on the time frame and the roadmap for the end times. This is about who. Who is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power? Who's sitting on the throne? Is it Caesar? That guy sitting on his throne in a palace in Rome? Because he certainly claimed it. Or is it someone else? Now, having said all that, when, when you read this chapter, as you listen to this chapter, the one on the throne, God, only gets one little phrase that directly describes him. It's in uh, verse 3, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. That's it. That's all we get that directly describes who God is. The rest of the whole chapter, the rest of this scene, it's all describing what's around the throne. What the, what the, what's above the throne, who's in front of the throne, uh, who's gathered around the throne more broadly. It's describing the throne room scene and what's said to God and what's uttered in worship to it. So it's by understanding what happens around God, around the one on the throne, that we come to see who God is. It's an indirect description of God in many ways, partly out of reverence for who God is. In fact, the one on the throne is never even named. He's just the one on the throne. We know it's God, but out of reverence to him, John doesn't even use his name. So let's dive in here. There's a number of ways you could approach it, but let's start by looking at these beings that are closest to the throne. The ones that are the, the closest, at least in, in Revelation 4, these strange-looking creatures, they're called living creatures, in verse 6, John starts talking about them. In the center around the throne were these four living creatures, odd-looking beings. The first one looks like a lion, and the second one looks like an ox. The third one looks like a man, like a human being. And the fourth one looks like an eagle. They're covered in eyes. They've got wings. They're quite bizarre characters. Now, these, these creatures, these living creatures, are drawn from two passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. Two other great throne room visions in the Old Testament. Through two majestic visions where the prophets saw the throne room of God and encountered his presence. And in both cases, you have creatures who look similar to these living creatures. They've got different attributes, but what's happening in Revelation 4 is that they're combined. It's like a merging of the living creatures from Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. And that gives us a clue as to who their identity is. Because it's quite clear, especially in Ezekiel, that these living creatures are angels. They're not human beings. Uh, they're not so much from the earthly created order. These are angelic beings. And, and in particular, they're called cherubs and seraphs, or cherubim and seraphim. Quite big words to throw around. Usually, you think of cherubs, right? You think of those little chubby baby angels. You know, that is not what we're talking about. Just to clarify, not chubby baby angels like Cupid with a little bow and arrow, you know, making people fall in love. Not those guys. That's not, they're, not, they're not in the throne room. The cherubim and the seraphim, they're actually the highest ranked angelic beings in, in, in the angelic world. So in the biblical story, when you have angels that are named like Gabriel, like Michael, they're probably part of the cherubim and the seraphim. These are the elite angelic team, the captains of the armies of God, the leaders of angels. Uh, these are pretty high up creatures, pretty high up beings. That's why they are the closest to the throne. Later on, thousands upon thousands of angels are going to join in the chorus, but the cherubim and the seraphim, the elite, the, the, the leader angels, they're right there in, in the front of the throne. Now you would think Given how close these angels are to God, given how high up they are in the pecking order of things, this is sort of God's inner circle in a way, you would think that there could be a little bit of buddy-buddy going on. 
You'd think that they could kind of, you know, chummy up to God a bit. They might be able to banter back and forth. But look at how they respond to God. Look at what they say to God in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Even these angels in the most esteemed and prestigious position they could possibly hold can do nothing other in the presence of God than cry, holy, holy, holy. Now we think holy, generally when we think about holy, we think of something perfect or something pure. So we kind of imagine this hierarchy of beings, you know, with God right at the top, the most holy, the most perfect, the most pure, down then through the angels and then down to human beings, different levels of human beings, right down to, you know, Australians and <laughs> other people, people that like country music down here, you know, this kind of whoever at the bottom, you know. What, you create your own hierarchy, all right? All right? This is do it yourself. So we kind of got this whole like ladder of beings, and at the top is God, right? We can all agree on that at least, depending on who's at the bottom. At the top is God, because he is the most holy, he's the most perfect, he's the most pure. So we kind of imagine holiness like that, like a kind of hierarchy that goes up. But the thing is, that's not how the Bible describes the holiness of God. The best word to think about holy is not perfect, but other. It's the best word. If you want one word, holy means other. In fact, holy means holy, W-H-O, holy, other, completely other. So if in one camp, if in one category, you've got all created beings, everything God has made, angels, human beings, animal life, plant life, physical creation, all of it, think of it in all one category over here. It's all in one box. God is over here. In fact, he's out the door. He is in his own category. He is not at the top of our hierarchy. You can't just think of something pure, elevate it to the highest possible degree, and think you've arrived at God. God's not on that spectrum. God's not on that continuum. God is in his own spectrum. He's on his own continuum. He is the spectrum. He is in completely his own category. He is not in our box. He is not on our spectrum. He is other. He is so utterly, utterly incomprehensible. He is completely unfathomable. He's indescribable. He can't be contained by any language that we try and conjure up about him. He can't be contained by any system of thinking that we have about him. He can't be contained by any of our schemes, any of the devotions or meditations of our heart. He just cannot. He cannot reside in those things. He is absolutely beyond us. He is absolutely transcendent of us. He is completely other than us. He is holy. And even those words don't even start to get close to what true holiness is all about. He is other. He's holy. That's why John doesn't mention his name. That's why John can't see him. All he can talk about is the one upon the throne who is absolutely outside of anything that we can contain. This is why you have around the throne the thunder and the lightning. They take us straight back to this image that comes out of Exodus as Israel's gathered around Mount Sinai. 
And God says to Moses, come up the mountain and I'm going to meet with you. But don't let the rest of the Israelites come near. And a dark cloud descends on the mountain. There's thunder. There's peals of lightning. And Moses ascends up the mountain, but he's careful not to let any other Israelite even get near to the mountain. God says, don't even let them, come. Don't even let them touch the bottom of the mountain. Don't even let them approach. The idea is that God as the Holy One is completely and utterly unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no eye can see, whom no ear can hear. He is absolutely beyond us. He cannot be approached. His presence and our presence are like oil and water. They simply cannot merge. They cannot meet because God is a category distinction all of his own. He is the unapproachable one. And you just hear John grasping for the language to try and describe what is ultimately indescribable. He's trying to relay something that is really just beyond him and beyond us, the Holy One who just cannot be approached because he is other than, other than us. Now, so far, that's a bit of a distant picture. That's a bit of a remote, that's almost an intimidating, it is an intimidating picture of God, the Holy One, the other one. The distant, the unapproachable one. But then notice something else about this vision. As John's standing there, and let's put it back up on screen, you also notice this vision is full of color. It's full of light. You have this throne emanating light, jasper, that's red, I had to look that up, jasper, and ruby, and this rainbow of emerald encircling the throne. Because John can't see the holiness of God. John can't perceive the true nature of God as he truly is. None of us can perceive the holiness of God. We cannot see it. We can't possibly encounter it. Nor can we ever. Nor will we ever be able to. But what John can see is light. What he perceives is this light emanating from the throne and connecting with him and connecting with his eyes. He can see the light. What John is seeing is not the holiness of God. What John is seeing is the glory of God. Now, to understand the difference between the glory of God and the holiness of God, come back again to our two categories. Over here is all created things, every created being. Over here is the holy God in a category all of his own. But here's the question of the biblical story. What happens when the holy one draws near? What happens when the unapproachable one approaches? What happens when his presence connects with our presence is not that we see his holiness. It's that we see his glory. God's glory is his presence made visible. God's glory is his holiness, in a sense, made accessible, made visible in some way, something of himself revealed, something of himself made known, made visible to our eyes. And and light is the perfect metaphor for it. That's why Jesus reveals himself here. It's why God reveals himself in light. That's why John describes it this way. Because light gives us the idea both of distance but also nearness. It's like looking into the sun. You can't possibly stare into the sun. It'll burn your eyes. You you are blinded by the sun. Even though it's 150 million kilometers away, we can't look directly into the sun. We're blinded by it. That's like we can't perceive the holiness of God. We cannot look straight into the presence of God. We are blinded. There's too much. It's not that there's too little of it. There's too much of it. But what we can see is sunlight. 
Just look up for a minute, up to these skylights. See, we're all looking at sunlight. We're all looking at natural light. It's probably a bit cloudy out there, but we're still seeing natural light. We're seeing sunlight. That means that even though we cannot look into the sun and you and I can't get anywhere near the sun, we can't approach it, we are still seeing the rays of the sun that have traveled 150 million kilometers and have connected with our retina and has drawn near. The light of the sun is drawn near. In a sense, we are perceiving the glory of the sun. We're perceiving the light of the sun. That's what God's glory is like. We can't look directly into his presence, but it's, it's the rays of light. It's the rays of God's presence that come, and we perceive him indirectly, in a sense, by looking at the sunlight of his presence that connects with us. And the very fact that we can see anything of God and know anything of God means that in some way, in some sense, he has drawn near. In some sense, he has made himself known, just as he made himself known to John. Now, it doesn't mean that he makes himself known just through physical light. The light's just an image. It's just a metaphor. But God's glory is revealed in all kinds of ways. I remember years ago, uh, I was sitting on a, on a chairlift going up Mount Ruapehu. I used to love my snow skiing back in the day. And, and one particularly fine day on the mountain, sitting on this chairlift, just, just being whisked up the hill, clear skies, it's a snow-covered mountain from a recent good dump of snow, and uh, just that sense of the presence of God and the majesty of God in creation. And that scripture came to mind from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies reveal, what is it? Reveal his knowledge, reveal his presence. Day to day they pour forth, pour forth speech. Night to night they reveal knowledge. And that sense of God's presence, God's glory is being revealed through creation. That's what happens when you perceive the beauty and the wonder of the created world. You're perceiving something of the glory of God. It's God's presence made known through his created work. It's the glory of God revealed in creation. So get out into it and enjoy. go to that beach, go to that lookout, go to that place. You are perceiving and encountering the glory of God. It's the same way John encounters the glory of God through light. We perceive, we can perceive the glory of God through the beauty and the majesty of his creation. Sometimes it's in more subtle ways. You think of... Uh, Elijah in the Old Testament in 1 Kings and God says to Elijah go and stand on the mountain and my presence will pass by you. God's going to reveal his glory to Elijah and so Elijah goes and stands on the mountain presents himself before the Lord and this great wind this rushing wind comes by it shatters the rocks and it shatters the mountain in two but the presence of the Lord is not in the wind and then a great earthquake comes and the mountain trembles violently but the presence of the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then a great fire comes past, but the presence of the Lord is not in the fire. And then a gentle whisper. And this is how God reveals his glory to Elijah, in the gentle whisper. Not always the dramatic stuff. Not always the dramatic Revelation 4 type throne room experience. Sometimes a quiet word. Sometimes it's the quiet word from the scriptures that speak to your heart and speak to you of God's presence, of his holiness, of his glory. Sometimes the gentle whisper of a friend, an encouraging word, an affirming word. Sometimes circumstance, there's something in the midst of the darkness and the struggle and the pain that you're going through and God just shines a ray of light just in the midst of it, just something as a reminder of his presence. He's with you. He's not left you. He'll never abandon you. Just a little reminder through circumstance that he's right there 
and he's walking with That's the glory of God being revealed in your situation. It's the gentle whisper. But there is one way in which the glory of God is revealed and made known more than any other way. In the book of 2 Corinthians, you don't need to turn there, just let me read you this, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Here's how we really know the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. If you want to know the glory of God, if you want to see the glory of God, look at Jesus. He is the manifestation of the glory. I'm not just talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus of Nazareth in all his earthiness, in all his humanity, is the glory of God. In him the fullness of deity dwells. John said we've seen his glory. The glory of the Father, the one and only, full of grace and truth. If you want to behold the glory of God, you don't don't need to go seeking the dramatic experience. You just need to look at Jesus. Just need to read the Gospels and listen to his life. Just need to spend time with him, walking with him, and allow him into your circumstances and your situation. Commune with him, walk with him, deepen your relationship with him, and you will behold the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus. It's how God supremely makes his glory known and manifest. Jesus is that ultimate light coming from the Father's throne to us, to our heart. Now, I want to go to one part of this vision in Revelation 4 that I found the most intriguing. And it's this rainbow, this emerald rainbow around the throne of God. It's just just gripped my heart as I prepared this message. I keep coming back to the rainbow. What's the rainbow about? And I think the rainbow does a couple of things here. This rainbow, in verse 3, the rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. In one sense, it backs up this image of the glory of God. It's the radiance. It's drawn straight out of Ezekiel 1, um, who puts it beautifully. He talks about that there was a rainbow around the throne, like a rainbow uh, through the clouds on a rainy day was the radiance of, of God. So the rainbow speaks to us of the glory of God, but it says something else. Because where else in the Bible do we meet a rainbow? Back in the Noah story, the flood, right? And after God has rescued Noah and his family through the flood, then he makes a covenant, and he makes it not just with Noah, he makes a covenant with every living creature on the earth that he will never destroy the earth again through a flood. He makes this covenant, and he seals it and signifies it by putting a rainbow in the sky. The rainbow is a sign of God's peace with with humanity and creation. It's a sign of God's intention not to destroy, but to save. It's a sign of God's mercy. It's a sign of God's love. Isn't that intriguing? That here in Revelation 4, amidst all the holiness of God, amidst all the glory of God, we also have here a sign of the love of God, a sign of the incredible mercy of God encircling the throne. And we could push this a bit further because you go back to the Noah story. When God says to Noah, I'm going to put my rainbow, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. Noah had no idea what a rainbow was. Nobody had any idea what a rainbow was. Nobody had seen a rainbow. There hadn't been any rainbows up to that point. So God just used the word bow. He didn't call it a rainbow. He just said, I'm going to put my bow in the sky. Now, what would Noah have thought when God says, I'm going to put my bow in the sky. What would he thought of a bow being? 
like a bow and arrow, right? I mean, Noah would have known about that. He would have been a hunter-gatherer to some degree, and he would have thought bow and arrow, weapon of warfare, weapon of destruction, weapon of violence, a bow. God says, I'm going to put my bow in the sky. And so there he placed it. And when you look at the rainbow, next time you're in the car or wherever you are and you see the rainbow, just imagine it as a war bow, as a weapon of violence, and imagine there's an arrow in that bow. If you placed an arrow in a rainbow, which way is it going to point? Which way is it going to fire? It's going to fire upwards. So God could have made the rainbow the other way, but he places it this way. I think for a very significant reason. God is saying, my intention is not to smite the earth. God's intention is not to fire the arrow downwards towards humanity and towards creation, but God, out of his great love for us, is going to allow himself to be pierced. God is going to enable the arrow to pierce the heart of heaven. See, the the rainbow preaches the gospel. If you let it, the rainbow... Parents, remember that one next time you're telling them about Noah. This is not just a nice story about trusting God so you don't encounter a flood as well. It's about Jesus. It's about getting from Noah to Jesus. Because God has said in Isaiah 53, picks up the imagery, He was pierced for our transgressions. God enables Himself to be pierced in the sufferings of His Son. He takes upon himself our inadequacies. He takes upon himself our transgressions. He takes upon himself our sin. And he ultimately dies to reconcile us to himself. You could talk to your kids about that rainbow in the sky next time you see it and the arrow that pointed upwards and pierced the heart of God because he loved you so much. Isn't that extraordinary? That in the throne room of God, amidst the holiness and the glory, you have the rainbow that tells the gospel, that gives the good news about Jesus. And tells us that the Holy One, the unapproachable One, has not only drawn near to us and revealed His glory to us, but He has died for us to reconcile us to Himself. That's how near He's wanted us. That's how near He's drawn us to Himself. This is not just a throne of holiness. This is not just a throne of glory. It's also a throne of grace. The grace of God is right there in the throne room of Revelation 4. This is not just an intimidating, remote, and distant God, but one who loves us and has died for us to bring him, bring us to himself. And that's represented, of course, by the presence of these elders who are there. Who are these guys, these 24 elders? Well, there's 24, numbers are important in Revelation. There's 24 of them because it's 12 plus 12. 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament 12 apostles in the New Testament. Together, the elders represent the fullness of the people of God. The people of God from the Old Testament, the people of God from the New Testament. God's people, and that includes us, right? We are represented by the 24 elders. These elders shouldn't even be there. These elders shouldn't be anywhere near the throne, but they're there because of the rainbow. They're there because God has reconciled them to himself. They're there because now God invites them in. And they have this place of honor and they have this place of privilege. We have this place of honor and this place of privilege around the throne of God. We're in the throne room. We're invited into it. Ephesians 2 tells us we're already seated in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Not just a future picture, but now, even as you sit here this morning, you are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus as one of those elders seated around the throne. And you're wearing this this white robe. I don't even know if white's your color, but you're wearing it. It signifies our own holiness, that God has gifted us. Not that we're in the same category as God, 
being the Holy One. But now our identity is wrapped up in Jesus, the Holy One. So we are other than that old identity. We're other than sin. We're other than our old self. We are consumed in the identity and the clothing of Jesus. The robe of righteousness, the garment of salvation, the clothes of Jesus. It's what God sees when he looks at you. There we are, wearing the robe of righteousness with the crown on our head even. Almost seems blasphemous that the elders be wearing a crown of their own, but it's pictured as this reward for their own faithfulness. But you see, as the elders encounter the presence of God and as the four living creatures bow down and worship, they can respond no other way than cast their crowns down before the throne of God and declare, you are worthy to receive all glory and honor and thanks. Giving glory to God, away from themselves, not about them, ultimately about the presence of God. The elders, the 24 elders, can do nothing else in the presence of God than fall on their faces and worship him. That's the response of seeing and encountering the presence and the glory and the grace of God. That's the natural responses to worship. In, in one sense, that, that's exactly what happens when we worship here. From one perspective, this heavenly throne room vision in Revelation 4 is a heavenly perspective on what earthly worship looks like. It's what happens in heaven when God's people worship on earth. Because worship on the outside doesn't really look that spectacular, does it? It looks like a bunch of people standing in rows, singing songs, praying prayers, taking communion. But while that's happening, there's something quite different going on in heaven. We are around the throne of the Most Holy One. We are encountering and beholding the glorious presence of the Untouchable One. We are coming with boldness and confidence to the throne of grace to find mercy, the one who can help us in our time of need. We're there with the living creatures, with the hosts of heaven, with the thunder and the lightning and the rainbow encircling the throne. That's what's happening when we worship. We are centered around the glorious, holy, gracious presence, throne of God. That's what earthly worship is. That's what's happening when we worship together. Even though it might look mundane and boring on earth, it is a spectacular sight from heaven's perspective. And can you imagine one of these elders turning to another elder in the midst of this worship time and saying, I don't really like this song. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine like, just looking at these words here, oh, you're worthy, our Lord and God. Have you got anything else in this hymn book? Anything else? I didn't grow up singing this song. This is not my tradition. This is not my denomination. We don't sing this. This is, Or maybe you can imagine them saying, it's a bit loud, or it's a bit soft, or it's not really my favorite worship leader. Can't one of the other living creatures take a turn? I like them better. <laughs> you know? Can you, can you imagine how bizarre that would be for them to have that kind of conversation? It would, what it would be, really, is a total loss of perspective. Isn't that right? These kinds of things only become issues when we take our eyes off the throne. They can only possibly become issues when we lose sight of the one who is sitting on the throne because as long as you're looking at him and you are beholding the light of the glory of the presence of the most holy one, 
How can you possibly look in your songbook and say, well, I don't like the song or I don't like the musical. This isn't my favorite tune. Those things just seem so trivial. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious, I know. Those things have value and those things are important in worship. But the point is that in worship, we center ourselves around the throne, not around me. And we have to work at this. This takes focus, doesn't it? It's going to be much easier when we really physically, directly one day behold the glory of God. But for now, in this life, with all of our distractions, this takes effort. It's not, it doesn't come naturally. I know, you're cold, you're distracted, you're thinking about what you're having for lunch, you're thinking about the pressures of work last week and the pressures of work this week. There's all kinds of barriers to your worship. And it takes a real focus to get beyond me, get beyond myself and my preferences and what kind of worship experience I want or don't want. Get beyond my attitude, my tiredness, my I don't care, my I'm too tired, my worship's not my thing, all of that stuff, all of those excuses that ultimately fade away and mean nothing before the throne of God because you will never say those to God when you finally stand before Him. So why are we saying them now? Why are we feeling them now? It takes focus to get beyond those things and fall on our faces in the presence of the holy and glorious and gracious one. But that's what worship is. It doesn't always come naturally, but it is so important. It is an expression of our response to the presence of God. And so as you worship, not just today, but week by week as we gather in worship, try to intentionally shift your mind and heart away from you, away from what feels good, and what you prefer, and what you like or don't like, and where your attitude is in that moment. And try to center your heart and your mind around the throne. That's where worship begins and ends. Focus your mind's eye on the throne and on the one sitting on the throne, and these other trivial things may just take care of themselves. There's so many different ways we can respond to this vision, aren't there? I was speaking at a camp a couple of weeks ago, and we had a great worship time on the Saturday night after I'd I'd spoken, and we were singing some songs, some songs actually that reflected these words from Revelation 4, holy, 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 singing about the holiness and the glory of God. And I looked around the room as we were worshiping, and some people, you know, they're standing there with their hands raised, this kind of declaring, you know, the glory and the holiness of God. And and other people were just quietly standing, some with, with... Um, in a posture of receiving, just basking in the grace, just the mercy, just being still. And there was one guy right beside me who was literally curled up on the ground in the fetal position. And I don't say this to be dramatic. It's, it wasn't anything weird, but he was literally with his hands over his head, like, like he was shielding himself from the presence of God. It just reminded me of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah encounters the glory of God. You know his first response? Woe is me. That's that's how he felt when he encountered the presence of God, because it exposed him. It undid him. And he realized that he was a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And his first response was, woe is me. That may be our response too. Worship is not all declaring and affirming and triumph and victory. Sometimes it is, and that's good to affirm and give praise. And glory. Sometimes, though, our response is, woe is me. Because the closer you get to the throne, the more the light might shine up things in your own life and heart that are not as they should be.
and the distance that's grown between you and God. But the good news is there's always grace, just as there was for Isaiah. The seraph comes and touches Isaiah's lips with a coal and says, See, your sin is atoned for. You're clean. You're pure. You've been made right. That's always where worship ends. It never ends in condemnation and conviction. It ends in a fresh receiving of grace, fresh receiving of the mercy of God. I don't know how God's calling you to respond this morning. As you think about this picture in Revelation for all of its dimensions, all of its imagery, it can be so overwhelming and so overloading, but is there one thing that God is wanting you to respond with this morning? What is the posture of your heart that God is wanting to draw out? Is it to respond with genuine praise, declaring and affirming the holiness of God, the untouchable and the unapproachable one? Is it to wonder at the glory of God and just be lost in amazement at who God is and that his presence has come near to us? Is God wanting you to be reminded again of the extravagant bounty of his grace that's maybe become mundane for you? Maybe it's become too familiar. And God is saying, I want to blow you away again with the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means. Maybe he wants to focus you on the rainbow and talk you through the gospel story. Maybe he wants to give you a fresh picture of who you are this morning as one of those elders clothed in white with the crown on their head. Maybe he's calling for your repentance and he's calling for the woe is me. And he's wanting to challenge you. And there's something that he's wanting to, to shine the spotlight on in your life. And worship is a moment where that happens too. It's an uncomfortable moment where things are revealed and truths are seen that we don't want to see. But maybe that's what God's asking of you this morning. He's saying, I want to show you something. And then I want to lead you through confession into new grace. And maybe it's just simply humility. Maybe it's just simply falling down as those elders did and laying our crowns at the feet of the throne and as the old hymn says, pouring contempt on all our pride that so easily seduces us into thinking that we are something and that we deserve to be in the throne room and naming that pride again to God and just falling down in humble adoration (coughs) at the presence of the Almighty. What's the response that God is asking for from you? We're going to spend some time worshipping. And we'll stand and we'll sing, and they may or may not be your favorite songs, but you may want to, even though we'll stand as a congregation to sing, you may want to, there may be another posture that's appropriate for you. You may want to sit down. If that's a, a greater reflection of how you need to respond to the presence of God, then that's fine. You may want to kneel. If that's a greater reflection of where your heart is in response to God, that's okay. You respond as God would have you respond. Whatever this vision is drawing out of you, whatever the Holy One wants to invite you to respond with and respond to, allow your heart to to draw near to Him in worship. Let's pray, and then we'll worship together. God, we, we picture ourselves there. We picture ourselves around the throne. And we see the light coming, emanating from your presence. God, we hear the thunder and we see the lightning. 
And we see the rainbow encircling your throne that speaks to us of your grace. We hear the living creatures cry, holy, holy, holy. We hear the thousands upon thousands of angels giving you praise, giving you glory. And now, God, you look to us, your people, the 24 elders, and you invite us, you ask us to worship you and to respond to your presence. And so we do. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.